listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Mark chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, I would really encourage you to use the Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you, and you can find Mark chapter 6, at least the end of the chapter that we're going to be going through today on page 842. So as you're finding Mark chapter 6 and the very familiar story of Jesus walking on the water, on page 842 of the Bible's underneath the chair in front of you, um, there's something that I need a few minutes of your time to tell you about. Good news, exciting news, but I need to update you on it. So while you're finding Mark chapter 6, Um, Let me mention an update on where we are as a church regarding the building and the finances of our building. And so um, for the next five minutes, I'm going to be talking about money. Okay, there it is. It's out there. It's, listen, if you are a visitor here or a guest or you're maybe not a Christian, you're just invited by a friend, we do not want your money. (laughs) There's no, we're not going to pass the offering baskets again. Notice we're doing this after the offering. So um, this is for your information, but also this is a a sense, a call to action to let you guys know where we are. So as you remember about uh, beginning of October, by the Lord's grace, we were able to, at the steps of the courthouse in a foreclosure proceeding, buy this whole shopping center for about $3.5 million. We didn't feel like we needed the whole shopping center, but that was our only option at the time. And if we didn't pursue it aggressively, then we were you know, potentially vulnerable to somebody else buying it and kicking us out. And so by the Lord's grace, we were able to buy that. And we were it's not like we had that money laying around, but obviously the bank was very generous to us and gave us a loan for that amount, knowing that we were going to sell off the front portion of the building that we, that we did not need. And so we were able to do that about a month and a half later, and we were able to sell off the front portion of the shopping center. And so that re- leaves us with this building that we're in right now, and then the two large side buildings, the Linens for Less building and the Playful Pals uh, building, which is a dog grooming, dog um, keeping business. And so those businesses are going to stay in business for the next few years, Lord willing, as we, uh, but we do own them, and both of the owners understand that eventually we may need that space for our ministry use when the time comes. And so after all of the dust has settled, and we have sold off the portion of the shopping center that we do not need, and reinvested the profits into our original loan, we currently owe right now about 1.7 million dollars now for people like me that kind of grew up the son of a high school football coach that sounds like a lot of money and that is a lot of money but friends um if i could just give you a little perspective we now own 72,000 square feet in the middle of the city for 1.7 million dollars that is that's really unbelievable if we were to try to recreate the space that we have here on a raw piece of land, it would be, it would be north of $10 million. I mean, easily, easily. So praise God for that. Praise God for that. Now, where do we stand now? The bank, our bank, CB&T, 
has been very, very accommodating and helpful to us during this process. And what essentially they have let us do is they have, until all of the dust settles and we kind of know what we owe, they have allowed us to just pay interest on the loan, kind of floating it out for you know, three months and now another three months. And so what we are, want to do now is we want to, in three months, we are going to lock in a, a, a kind of more permanent posture on our loan with the bank. We're going to lock it in a, a more of a long-term note, you know, 15 years or beyond. And so before we do that, we want to look at what we owe right now, which is $1.7 million, and we want to do our best to, in the next couple months, if you are able, and you have been waiting, and I know some of you have been telling us this, you are, are waiting to give towards the building now is the time to do it, really in the next couple months. In, in about two months, we're going to have to lock in our long-term posture with the bank, a 15-year note or maybe, maybe longer. And so think of it, you know, I think in either sports analogies or army analogies. That's kind of the only analogies I have. So think of it, all of you young rangers and young infantry guys out there, think of it kind of like we're about to go on a ruck march, you know, a few miles. And we want to start this ruck march... Instead of starting with an 80-pound rucksack, we, we want to start with, you know, a 50-pound rucksack or a 25-pound rucksack. We want to take as much of what we owe right now, that 1.7, in the next couple months, if you are able to give above and beyond just regular giving, we want to get that down as low as we can. So, if, you know, if you have $1.7 million laying around, boy, that, that sure would be nice. Or if you have, you know, a large sum of money that maybe the Lord has, has given you to be the steward of that you could give to bring that initial amount down. Or maybe you just, uh, comparatively speaking, have what seems to be a very small amount of money that you uh, can give towards the building fund to initially bring that principle down. Um, now is, is the time to do that. And don't, by the way, don't discount um, maybe what might seem like a small amount of money. You know, maybe just if you're a college student, $50 or something, $100 or whatever. Maybe that's a large amount of money too. I don't know. But, but you know, in a couple, a couple weeks, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12 where Jesus looks at the widow's two copper coins that she puts in the offering and he commends her because it was a sacrifice for her compared to these rich people that were throwing in a relatively large amount of money, but it really wasn't a sacrifice for them. And so we're not we're calling all of you that call Crosspoint home to, in the next couple months, kind of all hands on deck and to give what you can so that we can start this ruck march that we're going to start when we lock in that loan with our bank it, it, with as least amount of weight on us as possible. And so let's say we can take that 1.7 and bring it down to, you know, a million dollars or maybe even less or, you know, whatever, 1.25. Boy, that will be a, a much quicker run. And then we will posture ourselves for the next few years to as aggressively as we possibly can pay off that debt so that we can be free as a congregation to be radically generous for the cause of the gospel amongst the nations and here in our city so that we can send out more missionaries so that we can, we can do gospel ministry here. So, so a couple things. Here's what will not happen, okay? 
There's not going to be any thermometers on stage. We, we've talked about that from the beginning. We're not, no manipulative sermons on money or giving. No Old Testament verses out of context promising you blessings if you give. No nameplates on the back of chairs or, or, or you know, we're not going to you know, take some biblical name and different levels of giving. You know, you're part of the, you know, the harvester's crew I know, for a certain level. We're, not, we're just not going to do it. There's going to be no giving consultants from Atlanta that are going to come down and show you PowerPoint slides. We're not going to have any chicken dinners for a special class of wealthy people in the church. We're not meeting with you because we know you have money. We're asking all of you, all of you, from, from, from you know, the comparatively very wealthy to the college kid, to all hands on deck, to give and to make much of the name of Jesus. But here's what we hope will happen in the coming months and next few years, is that all of us that call Cross Point home will do our part and will be generous and sacrificial. Again, visitors, um, this is not, we're not talking to you. Here's another thing we hope will happen is that we will start off this short journey of paying off this $1.7 million with as little debt as possible, with as light of a rucksack as possible. And then over the next couple of years, we'll be able to as aggressively as possible pay it all off so that we will be freer to be radically generous for the sake of of the ministry of the gospel in this city and the nation. So, so see, what happens when we pay this off is not, we don't, we don't then start spending money on ourselves and, you know, sprucing stuff up and being self-absorbed. We're then freer to send out more missionaries from this church to faraway places of the earth, like Jeremy and Samantha Orlich are getting ready to do in this next year. We're then freer to to maybe plant a few churches in Columbus. Wouldn't that be a great joy to have Crosspoint plant several churches in Columbus and, and someday we can take maybe 150 people from Crosspoint and say, go plant a church in that neighborhood and be a witness for our city in that neighborhood and send a whole bunch of money to help fund that church at the very beginning. So... Um, that's our building campaign. We need $1.7 million. Praise God. And uh, we look forward to, to how the Lord will, uh, again, make much of himself through that. Now listen, last thing I'm going to say on this is that you're going to hear this again over the next couple weeks because I realize it takes a few weeks for things to kind of settle in. So there's some of you that aren't here today. There's some folks that are working in children's ministry. Um, but that's okay. Some of you have watched The Hobbit three times already. And if... <laughs> If you can go back and watch the same movie again and again, or the Titanic, I mean, come on, Star Wars, I think I saw that 17 times when I was a kid, the, like the real ones back in the 70s. And so it won't hurt us to hear this, hear this again. So um, praise God. Thank you, church. You have been, you, you are like the easiest people to talk to. You're so generous. There's such a, a winsome, joyful attitude here. And I mean, I'm, I'm ready to shadow box and think about how like God is going to be glorious again through 
Um, this little little redemptive project we like to call Crosspoint that started in our, our, um, our living room eight years ago. And I think the wealthiest person in our church at that time was Paul Fincher, and he worked in landscaping. Um, and he was in, he was in college. <laughs> and um, um, so praise God. Praise God. So um, God has been good to us. Amen. All right. Well, let's go. Let's get into Mark chapter 6. And... Uh, this morning, we are going to be working through a very familiar portion of Scripture. If, if you've been a Christian for any time, and if you're n- not a Christian, and maybe you've never read the Bible, I'm really glad that you're here. But I think probably even you have maybe heard analogies to this story, that, or references to this story that we're going to go over today. And also this morning, it's the first Sunday of the month, which means that as a congregation, it is our practice to, to receive communion together, where we come together as believing, confessing Christians to do what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, to come around the Lord's table and to tear off a little piece of bread, which represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, and to take a little cup of juice that represents his blood that was spilled for us. And we're going to remember Jesus' work on the cross. And if you are a Christian whether or not you're a member of this church or not, if you are a gospel-believing Christian, then you are welcome to come to this table with us this morning at the end of uh, the message time. Now, uh, as you realize, we've added a few rows and changed up our seating configurations, and really the primary reason that we've done that is to give us more um, of an opportunity to, to have a better flow during communion and to respond. And so, Um, There's a few more communion tables here in the middle sections, and there will be an usher serving communion at every at every for every section. And so, middle the front middle section, you'll come down here to this table. The 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 back middle sections, you'll have a an usher serving you, and then uh, this section here in the front, you'll have a brother here over there serving. In that back section, you'll have somebody directing you over there, and that that back section over there and you over there, there'll be somebody standing right in front of you to serve you. But, but here's one of the things why we have added more rows is because we, we want communion to be a, a, a response where we are examining our lives. We don't want it to just be sort of rote, sort of tradition, and we don't want you responding to the Lord to be the inertia of your row. Does that make sense? Like, oh, everybody else is getting up, so I, I guess I got to get up. So after the message, um, we're going to sing some songs of response, and it will be a time when we want you to, as you are ready to respond to the Lord, to consider the cross, to think about the implications of what Jesus has done for you, and if you are a believing Christian, for you to, as you are ready, not because there's pressure in your row to come and receive communion. And if you, listen, if you're not a Christian, I am so thankful that you're here today. I pray that you will continue to come and that you will feel our love and and welcome. But this meal's really not for you yet because I would hate for you to to, to do something, to sort of falsely profess something that you don't yet believe. And so coming to the table is we're we're confessing and really proclaiming that we believe in what Jesus has done on the cross is the only hope for our right standing with God, that Jesus on the cross bore our sin, satisfied God's holiness for it, and rose again in victory over sin and 
the grave and death and all of its consequences. And we, I would hate for, to sort of, by social pressure, make you do that meal if you're not yet believing that. And so there's no shame in just staying in your seat and letting, and letting everybody else around you respond as they are ready. And then at the end of our service, Wayne will come and lead us to receive communion together. Well, let's get into the Word today, and let me read Mark chapter 6, and um, we have a bit of a challenge today. Again, this is a, a, a very familiar passage, and sometimes passages can become so familiar to us that we sort of lose the wonder of it. And in this particular passage, we're at the end of Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at Jesus walking on water, and it's almost become sort of a euphemistic phrase in our culture to denote, you know, you know a supernatural ability or somebody that's a good basketball player, football player, whatever, you know, he walks on water. And we lose really the spiritual truth of it. And here's another challenge I have. In fact, I've, I've been having this challenge for some time through the Gospel of Mark. Um, it seems like really the point of every passage is sort of the same, that Jesus is King and Lord and God, so worship him. <laughs> you know, I feel I was talking to this pastor that I really respect that preached through Mark several years ago, and he said, yeah, the challenge for me when I preach through Mark is I kind of feel like the, the, the guy in the circus that, you know, he's like the one shot, he's the guy that climbs in the cannon, and that's like his only thing, he just gets shot out of the cannon, and that's like all he does in the circus is just he climbs back in the cannon and gets shot out. And I sort of feel a little bit like that with Mark, is okay, the point of this is that Jesus is God, and we should bow down and worship him and give our lives to him. Next story, the point of this passage is that Jesus is God and that we should bow down and worship him. And, and so, so, you know, the point of, of, of that is that Mark is writing to a Roman church who had a competing emperor, Caesar, who was competing for their allegiance. So it's good for the Roman church to hear again and again that Jesus is God, and it's good for the American church to hear that as well. We need to hear that same message. So I'm going to crawl back in the cannon, and I'm going to get shot out again today. So let me read, and we'll stop along the way and make a few points. But there's really only one thing that I want you to see today, and we'll just put it up on the screen at the very beginning. Here's the point. Here's the point of today. Jesus is Lord, therefore we need not fear the storm. Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher. He's not just a, a principle giver. He's not just a life coach. Jesus is Lord of all the earth. He is the creator, the sustainer. He is upholding, as Hebrews 1 says, the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus stopped doing that, you and I would cease to exist. Our flesh and our bones and our minds would crumple in a little pile of dust on the ground and the wind would blow us away. Jesus is not just the teacher of the Western ethic of Judeo-Christian life principles. Jesus is creator, God, Lord in the flesh. And therefore, for those that are trusting in that good sovereign God, we need not fear any storm. That's all I got today. Should I expound a little bit more? I guess. Let's at, least, let's at least read the passage. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, remember two weeks ago, last week, we had our missions weekend, and I won't mention the name publicly because they've asked us to keep their name off of the internet, 
but our guests from last week that served us so well to think about the cause of missions around the world were with us. We took a little break out of Mark. And by the way, if you missed last Sunday, we've got a bunch of copies on, this, on the foyer table, CDs. We can't put it on the internet because of, of the sensitivity of where they minister in the gospel in, uh, in uh, a closed country. But, um, but the week before that, we looked at how Jesus fed the multitudes, the 5,000, right? So this is just at the tail end of that. Jesus has fed 5,000 people, and sort of hurriedly, he's, he's asking his disciples to get into the boat. So immediately, he made, his, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after, that, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And so, okay, so here's what happens is that Jesus has very sort of hurriedly, after feeding the 5,000, which to me, I would kind of bask in that victory, you know? I mean, let's have a, I mean, today, whoever wins the Super Bowl, they're going to have a, probably, an, I would imagine they're going to have a party afterwards. I think even the losers have a party after the Super Bowl. But certainly the winners are going to have a party. And so Jesus has done this amazing miracle, and you can just imagine sort of the disciples wanting to bask in the glow of how amazing this was, but Jesus is hurrying them along. Get into the boat and go to the other side because he's going to go up to the mountain and pray, and we're going to read here in just a second about how uh, uh, some strong winds came. And Jesus, of course, we, we've established the fact, and at least as much in the first six chapters, is that Jesus is more than just a mere man. He is, in fact, God, very God. And so just as Jesus is able to create a huge meal for 5,000 people out of nothing, he, he can also certainly know what the weather forecast is, but yet Jesus is telling them to get into the boat and go. And so there's just this one thing that I think we should recognize is that Jesus leads his people into the storm. <laughs> Jesus leads his, he's about to lead his disciples. And, and this was the same point that we read or that we came up with a, a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus calming the storm when he was asleep in the boat. Jesus knows what's about to happen and yet he leads his people into the storm. Uh, I, I don't think your average American thinks along those lines that God is that sovereign. I think we tend to think of God as sort of reacting like, oh my gosh, oh, oh my gosh, the market's crashed. What are, what are we going to do now? Oh my gosh, that, that person was elected president or not elected president. Oh my gosh, that happened in your life. Oh, oh my gosh, that person has cancer. What, what? God is not reacting to anything in your life, friends. That is a great comfort. Jesus is sovereign, not over evil and the present, but over the future. And for his good purposes, he leads his disciples. In fact, he makes them get onto the boat. I mean, that, that's the word there. He made them. Can you imagine? Jesus, can we enjoy the afterglow of the miracle? Get into the boat. <laughs> I mean, uh, he leads his people into the storm. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. Verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So it's not like the time before in the storm when it seems like there's some distress like the, there that they were about to sink, but certainly it's a miserable, a miserable experience here. They, they are making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night... That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch of the night. So Jesus is evidently up praying. That's a whole lesson in and of itself. 
God himself in the flesh, praying to God the Father. He sees them, and he came to them walking on the sea. So let's just think here uh, just a moment about how miserable this must have been. So it's in the middle of the night. Don't just blow past this little verse here. Jesus made them get into the boat. By this point, they probably have some suspicions that he's a pretty powerful guy, if not realizing that he's God. And now they're you know, encountering this storm, and so they're wet, and they're tired, and they're probably cold. Now, being wet, you, know, you ever had to work with wet clothes on? You know, it just seems like rashes, you know, <laughs> and you just start to get angry. It's one thing to be wet and tired. It's another thing to be wet and cold and tired. We've got some guys from the church that are starting ranger school today. In the coming days, if any of their wives are in here right now, I'm sorry, sweetheart, but your husband is going to be wet and cold and tired and hungry. And it is amazing how grumpy you can get when you are wet and cold and tired and you've been given by somebody what you at this moment perceive to be very bad advice and if they would have just let you kind of chill that you could have avoided this rather miserable experience but remember Jesus is leading his people into the storm because he's setting them up for something else and then the second thing that I want us to notice is that Jesus comes to his people in the storm like Jesus sees them it's 3 a.m. in the morning and Jesus sees them and he comes to them and he walks on the sea out to them. Jesus doesn't just send us into the storm hoping that we will have the right answer, hoping that we will hit the right button, hoping that we will mark the right bubble on the Scantron test of life, just hoping that we'll get it right, putting us up to some test, wondering, oh, this guy failed, this guy passed. Good for you, bad for him. Jesus puts us in positions where we are stressed and we are frustrated to bring us to a point of futility so that he can come to us. And we see that even here that Jesus comes to his disciples walking on the sea. And then look at verse 48, the end of verse 48. This is puzzling. Okay, let me go back. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. What is that about? I mean, what? Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Remember, the same word was used in the previous storm back in Mark chapter 4. They, they saw Jesus, they woke him up, and he calmed the wind and the seas, and they were, they were at first afraid of the storm, but then it says they were very afraid of Jesus, and again, there's this sort of strange combination of Oh my gosh, he's walking on the water. Whoa! So there, it's not this kumbaya kind of little warm and cuddly thing. It's, it was so amazing that it, it scared them. That in that moment, they became, in a sense, more in awe of Jesus' power than they were in awe of the winds. And often, I mean, in, in, in modern biblical scholarship, all of these liberal scholars you read on this are trying to come up with some, you know, 
explanation of Jesus walking on the water. In fact, they do the same thing with the parting of the Red Sea. Well, clearly, clearly there was a sandbar there in the Sea of Galilee that he happened to be walking upon. There were large rocks, and he had a pretty good vertical jump, and so he leapt from one to the other. But, but there's a few things in our text that I think tell us that, that, that the disciples saw him actually walking on, on water, that this, is, that this is a miracle. First of all, they, they were shocked. So they didn't think that there was a possibility of some sandbar or, you know, a rock path out to where they were. They thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. And in this, in this storm that he has led them into, and then in this storm that he comes to them in, I think we see the real point of this passage, and this point number three that I want us to, to settle in on here is that Jesus reveals who he is to his disciples and to his people in the storm. And who is he revealing himself to be? Not just a miracle worker, but Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples on the boat and to his people throughout the ages that he is God in the flesh. So I think there's three things that we see in, this, in these few verses that I want us to look at real quick. That, that tell us that Jesus is revealing himself to God in the flesh. First, he's, he's, he's walking on water. He is suspending the laws of gravity. And that, that's, a, a, to me, a, a certain evidence. Now, now, that takes faith to believe, friends. Can we prove empirically as Christians in 2013 that actually happened? No. But... I think we have a whole lot of evidence pointing to the fact that this book, the Bible that we have, that's been passed down from generation to generation, has been believed by Christians that were eyewitness accounts of this, that gave their life for the testimony of who they thought this man was. And so these early Christians, Mark and Peter and these disciples, they are believing that Jesus is Lord. He's walking on water. The second thing, and this is clear to the first century readers of Mark's gospel. It doesn't seem as obvious to us, but Jesus, and by the way Mark is writing this, he is clearly saying something to them and to us. He is saying that Jesus is God. And it comes in that little strange phrase that he meant to pass them by. Didn't that trouble me? Come on, Jesus, you're up on the mountain. Surely he didn't mean, it's not like he was playing peekaboo with them out on the, on the water. That's, that's not what's going on. Jesus doesn't have the power to walk on the water just to sort of toy with the disciples and they accidentally saw him and Jesus like, ah, my plan has been foiled. They saw me. That's not what's going on. That language is pointing back Old Testament language about how God reveals himself to Moses. And that would have been very clear to a New Testament reader, to a, a reader of Mark's gospel. So, so in Exodus chapter 33, if you have some time later today, go and read the account of how Moses has been told by God to lead his people out of the desert 
into the promised land, okay? And so Moses is sort of, you know, he's consulting with God about this, and he's saying, God, I don't know. I I don't think we can do this. If we're going to do this, I'm certainly not up to this task, God. You're going to have to do this for us. You're going to have to go before us. And God answers Moses at the end of Exodus chapter 33, and he says, listen, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to show my glory to you, Moses. In fact, I'm going to pass by you, right? The very same language that is used in Exodus 33 is used in Mark's retelling of the story of Jesus. He says to God, the Father says to Moses, I'm going to pass by you and my glory is so strong and it is so beautiful and so holy and so majestic that I'm going to hide you in this little nook in the rock so that this glory doesn't just smoke you and I'm going to pass by you so that you just get a, a tiny little glimpse. And, and when Mark writes that Jesus meant to pass them by, it's not like Jesus was playing high, high, you know, peekaboo on the waves and accidentally got caught. It's hearkening back to God. And so Mark is using language about Jesus to identify him not just as a miracle worker, but as God himself. And so Jesus who is Lord, leads his people into the storm. He comes to his people in the storm. And then he uses the backdrop of the storm to reveal himself to his people as who he really is, which is God himself. And there's one more little clue in there. Let's let's read it. Verse 50. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And a more literal way of rendering Jesus' words there is Jesus is saying, take heart, I am. Again, the same way that God identified himself to Moses at the beginning of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is hearing this commandment from God to go and tell his people Israel, that he's going to deliver them and to follow him. And Moses is saying, when they, when they thumb their noses at me, who should I say has sent me? And God says, tell them that I am that I am sent you. And so for these Jewish these Jewish disciples, when Jesus is, is showing up, he's not just making a sort of personal pronouncement of who he is. Remember me, I'm Jesus, I've been with you for the last year or so. He's saying, I am that I am. He is, Jesus himself is identifying himself as God. Friends, why is this so important? Why is it so important that Jesus is God? Why is it so important that Mark takes particular care to point us back to the Old Testament, to relate God the Father's divinity, and to link Jesus' divinity, his divine nature, his Godship with God the Father's. It's because, friends, it's because we need God to save us. Do we understand how, how, how serious sin is? You see, the problem that we have as people is not, not this, just that we need a good moral teacher. The problem that we have as people is we, all of us, in some measure or another, whether you are a felon, a violent criminal, or whether we are self-righteous little religious kids that grow up in the church, all of us have sinned. 
All of us have rejected God's sufficiency. And we have rebelled, not just against a sort of grandfather-like figure who has good intentions for us and is hoping that we will serve him, but we have sinned against the immeasurable, infinite, holy, righteous God. And therefore, the weight of our sin is immeasurable and infinite. I know I give you this analogy all the time, and some of you are probably sick of hearing it, but it's, 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 it's very helpful to me to remind myself of the gravity of my sin. Sin, our rebellion, which all of us, whether or not it's obvious and public, or whether it's internal and self-righteous, whether it's thinking that we're good enough compared to somebody else, whether it's whatever it is, our sin gets its weight by the one against whom it is ultimately committed. So, I've used this analogy a few times. Um, if, if one of you, um, at the end of this service, came up to me and um, extended your hand like you were going to say, oh, Brad, I enjoyed that, but before we could shake hands, you, you pulled your hand away and just slapped me across the face. <laughs> Bam! Well, that, that would be awkward. <laughs> And um, in other settings, I might slap you back. I don't know. <laughs> but if you slap just an average Joe like me across the face, there's going to be some consequences, but, you know, whatever, man. We're going to get over it in a couple minutes. If the President of the United States was here and you busted through the Secret Service barricade, and in the middle of his speech, you slapped the President of the United States on the face. Home slice. You're going to jail. <laughs> That's what you're doing. You're going to jail. Right? I'll take politics out of this. Don't, don't think about whether or not you like our current president. We should pray for it. I'm saying that the value of an offense, the weight of sin gets its weight by the dignity and the office of the one against whom it is committed. And, and so on an infinitely grander scale, even our little internal self-righteousness and idolatry and rejection of God, friends, it doesn't deserve just a slap on the wrist. It deserves eternal, immeasurable punishment and what good man what person who can atone for that no one not even the best of us friends not even the best among us can stand before God himself and say I will stand as a sacrifice for these people none of them Moses failed David failed Joshua failed every good and righteous man is not enough save one Jesus the God man and so when we look at this and we say oh wow that's cute we believe in this thing called the Trinity Jesus is God clearly that's in our catechism that's nice friends grip 
into this, grab a hold of this truth because your salvation depends on the fact that Jesus is not just a good man. He is God himself who comes for his people and he alone can satisfy the judgment that should be eternal and infinite and never ending. But he alone, because he and his righteousness is eternal and righteous and never ending, is able to stand in the gap of holy justice that is bearing down on the head of every person who is rebelled against God, which is everybody. And so friends, when Jesus says, tell them, it is I, it is I, do not be afraid, he can say truthfully that we need not be afraid because he alone can stop the storm. And friends, believe me, the storm is not just high winds. The storm is not just cancer. The storm is not just a market that crashes. The storm is not just a rebellious teenager or a difficult marriage or whatever temporary trial we may be facing, and I don't mean to minimize that, but the true storm is the condemnation and the punishment for our sin that is barreling down on our heads. And Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God. I have come for you. I have come for you. I'm walking on the water for you, and I I am the only one who is able to quell the storm because my sacrifice on the cross is enough. Friends, that's the gospel, by the way. That's, that's the Christian message right there. Don't trust in yourself. It's rather ridiculous when you think about it. Trust in the God-man who has become flesh. Turn from self-reliance. Turn from broken counterfeit. Turn from pleasure that this world promises will satisfy but never does. Turn from it and turn and trust in Jesus even now, friends. And listen, I I know, I'm sure in a crowd this size, there are people in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus. Some of you think you probably are, but you're not yet. And some of you are aware of the fact that you're not yet Christians. And you may have a million different philosophical objections to this. And and, and, and friends, there's, there's no... I mean, this is a matter of faith. God has got to come to him. See, this is the good news of the gospel, is that God comes to you, and he makes himself so beautiful, and he makes his salvation so irresistible because your heart longs to make things right, does it not? I mean, all of our hearts know that, that w- the way we are is not the way it was intended to be. I mean, we read it this morning that he made everything good, very good, and we know that things are broken, and, and we know that we long for something more, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes for you and he gives you the very faith that he requires of you. So friends, I, I, I welcome your questions. I would love to talk to you about it, but friends, this is, this, is a, this is an issue of faith. God, in his graciousness, gives you this beautiful longing for which only he can satisfy. And friends, I would, I would just urge you to, to consider Jesus and to turn and trust in this God-man. Even now, don't wait for a prayer to repeat or a class to take. Turn and trust in Jesus even now. Let's finish the chapter in verse 51. It says, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Listen to this, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. At the beginning of this week, of the week when I was reading through this passage, 
I admit I was a little tempted to be a bit exasperated with the disciples. Your hearts were hardened? What? You just saw 5,000 people plus get fed, and you saw Jesus walk on the water? But I mean, this has been quite a 24 hours for them. Let's give them a little break. I mean, remember, remember that TV series 24 with Jack Bauer? And I can remember kind of halfway through the season, I was just, I was a little weary at all of the activity. I'm like, oh, the, that daughter keeps getting herself in trouble. Like you just, ah, oh, another situation? I mean, come on, really? I mean, you just, at some point, you're just like, I, I can't even take this complication. And, 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 and in a sense, I, I kind of have a little sympathy. There's like, whoa, it's just like circuit overload. Just like you, you, got, some, you got some circuits that are just like tripping, fuses that are breaking, like 5,000, walking in the water. Oh. But, but friends, this is, a, this, is a, this is a really a striking point to us is that, is that miracles in and of themselves don't necessarily bring faith. Faith and repentance are a gift. It's a sovereign gift of God. That's good news. So don't wait. Like, don't wait on the special revelation from God or some miracle. God, if this happens, then I'll serve you. Don't wait on some trick little thing to make you have faith, right? I used to be like that. I used to be superstitious, like thinking that God had to show himself to me. To, then I'll, I can remember driving down from New York from college, I graduated from college up there, I was driving down, picking up my car, flew back to California to, to, to say hi to my folks, left my car at school up in New York, and I was driving down the eastern seaboard to report to Fort Benning. I kind of had this sense that maybe God was going to maybe cause me to meet a girl, you know, I don't know. I was 22, I was a young soldier, it was on my mind, let's just be honest. And so I'm driving down, and all of, I'm just looking for signs I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm just looking for signs on the interstate, maybe billboards alliterating the first letter of maybe the name of the girl, the, the Southern Belle that I might meet in Georgia. You know, and I'm just thinking, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be awesome. And I'm, just, and I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, I'm coming down here. And, 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 and you know, lo and behold, um, I, I, I did actually meet a girl and we're married now. She had a different name than was alliterated on the signs. On the, but whatever, I mean, you get the point. But, but do you, I mean, you're saying we're just superstitious. We're just looking for a sign. But do, friends, loaves and fishes and walking on water still didn't get through hard hearts. Salvation is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Repentance is a gift. So, so young college guy, don't say that you can keep doing that thing and then when you get a wife and you get a real job, then you'll start living for Jesus. Don't, don't think that. Repentance is a gift. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And if you're waiting on God to, to do some trick that will finally convince you and make you believe, friends, you'll wait in vain. God has given you enough. He has shown his immeasurable beauty to you. Even today, friends, do not harden your hearts. Turn and trust in Jesus even now. And verse 53 continues, where they had crossed over, they came to Land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces 
and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, we're going to breeze past those last four verses. And I think that's a beautiful scene where Jesus is healing so many people. And I want to be generous to the motivations of the crowd there. But friends, could it be, could it be that some of them were coming to Jesus merely for the pragmatism of getting their temporary need met? And could it be that some of them, like the disciples on the boat, were still completely missing that Jesus isn't the miracle worker or the mystical healer, but he is God in the flesh. And as I read those last few verses, I was convicted of the times that I come to Jesus for temporary fixes. May our response be to this old story that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we need not fear the storm. And the storm that he has come to quell, the storm that he has come to calm is is not just the temporary. Because if this was the only story in the Bible that we had about Jesus' interaction with difficulty, then we would be tempted to think and build a theology out around this that when I'm in temporary trouble, like these winds that are against me, then Jesus is going to come and rescue me out of this temporary trial. But that's not all that the Bible says about that. The Bible gives us many examples of God's people who he causes to endure the storm. Read Hebrews chapter 12 at the end of the chapter, this great faith hall of fame, or Hebrews chapter 11, where it says that, that some had these great victories while their life here on earth and some of them were sawed in half. And so we can't take from this that, oh, Jesus is coming to take care of all my temporary little storms and fix my marriage and do this and cause everything to happen okay and for me to get the job and for the sickness to go away. I mean, for some of us, we might endure another 40 or 50 years of trial. But the point of the passage is that the true storm is the storm of judgment that is barreling down on our head. And the great news of this passage is that Jesus is able to quell the true storm so we should worship him. And we need not fear, you see, because our real problem is not just these 40 years. It's eternity and where we stand with a holy and righteous creator God. And so we need not fear now. What can man do to me? What can cancer cells do to me? What can the job market do to me? What can the difficult marriage do to me? What, what can the boss do to me? What, what can they do to me? What can the terrorists do to me? He can't do anything because if God is for me, who can be against me? Do not fear the one who can take your life merely, but fear the one who can not only take your life, but send your soul to hell forever. So we need to fear God, friends. The point and the good news of this passage is that Jesus is Lord. He is God in the flesh. And for those that turn away from trusting in them, themselves and turn and trust in him we need not fear we need not fear friends that is great news no 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 don't no it's too weak don't do it either we got to give it or we just kind of let it roll and let it let that sit on us thank you by the way i didn't whoever thank you Friends, do you, see how this, do you see how this releases me? Like, like this releases me from the bondage of these 90 years. Do you see that? Do you see how this, like, this frees us from the flesh. It frees us from the decay of this world. It frees us. Jesus is God. Therefore, we need not fear. Oh, God, there's 
that, to know that I was made for eternity, not for the American dream. Oh, friends, do you realize how this frees me to give up my death grip on these 90 years and put my death grip on the God himself, the God-man Jesus? Friends, do you know how freeing that is? Do you know how freeing that is? That's the peace that will cause you to sleep at night. That's the peace that will cause you to have this sort of strange, otherworldly joy that people are attracted to that want. That's what the life of the Christian is all about. We need not fear because Jesus is God and quells the eternal storm that was against us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, come now and show us these things. Lord, we're so, I mean, we're just, we're so, we're so scattered. I know I am. I mean, it's amazing how I can even be preaching a truth and then in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking this scattered thought about, I wonder how these people are receiving this or how am I coming across now? Lord, our, our minds are so captive to these 80 or 90 years in our temporary storms and concerns. And Jesus walks across the water of the storm of our life and says, it is I. Father, this morning, would you give us, before we receive this meal, would you give us a, would you lift our eyes and would you make the beauty and the joy and the, the satisfaction and the pleasure that is in right standing with you through Jesus, would that overwhelm our hearts? Would that consume us? And would it cause us to turn from trusting in broken, temporary things and turn and trust in Jesus? Would you make Jesus so altogether lovely and irresistible that we can't help but love him and trust him and worship him now. And Lord, when we come around this table, would it not just be a, a rote, traditional thing that we do on the first Sunday of the month, but God, would we, as Paul writes in Corinthians, would we examine ourselves? And, and Lord, as it says in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, would would we not care anything about just the efficiency of communion, but would we, would we wait for one another? Would we wait for one another and would we look to Jesus and would we revel in the God-man Jesus? And would you make us so, fall so deep, deeply and passionately more in love than, with Jesus than we were when we came in this room, that, that it's just an aroma of Christ on our lives. Lord, would you do that? Would you do that for me? I need, the greatest need of my life is to love and see Jesus more. And so when I tear that bread and when I drink that cup, Lord, would I remember, would I remember that on the cross, God died for me and rose again in victory. Therefore, I need not fear. Lord, would you do this? Would you do this? And would you take all of my sin, all of my failure, all of my contradiction, all of my self-absorption, and Lord, would you burn it up at the foot of the cross of Jesus this morning?
I pray that you would do that for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name.